0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, I'm editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com and joining me today, he is the man who played uh, Principal Ball in the ABC original series The Goldbergs, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir?
1: I am doing fine. That's Earl Ball to you, David. Okay, I stand corrected. You know, uh, one thing about the Goldbergs that people don't get a lot of times, I'm working with children, right, because I'm the principal of the school. People don't realize that when you are an actor working with children, a lot of times when the camera is on you, the children aren't there. They send the children off to school, and so you're either acting with nothing, you're acting to a C-stand with a piece of green tape on it, or what's best is when they put a few adults who aren't doing anything on the ground, and the adults always try to put on little kid faces. They always try to smirk like their children, which is always the best to act with. So when, when you are acting with children, uh, it's important to be able to do it on your own. What, David, I don't know what what you learned in college. If I mean, you are a man who has accomplished in so many things, but I don't know if you learned any of that in college.
0: Uh, learning about how to act with children? No, no. that's not <laughs> no. something I learned in college, Stephen.
1: No, I mean photography, yeah. I mean the cello, I mean all of the stuff that you do. Uh, some of the stuff I learned in college, some stuff I learned when I was growing up. Exactly. When I was in college, when I was in the theater department, I never learned anything about acting in television. I never learned anything about acting in movies. We rarely learned things about acting in plays that were actually being produced. We learned things about 16th century Spanish drama. I'll tell you, when I was in college, so this is what, back in the early 70s, what was really important at the time were dreams. And and I don't mean like visions of your future. I mean dreams that you dreamt at night when you were asleep. And it's understandable because... Man, with the waking world at that time filled with the horrors of Vietnam on one hand and the politics of personal destruction in the theater department on the other, us students sensed there had to be something more to life. People talked about their dreams in classrooms, in the cafeteria, on television. There were popular books on dream interpretation, and I bought one of these popular books. It was about the classic dream interpreter Carl Jung. And there was a section on dreams of men. And I remember it opened with a picture of Godzilla. And I was so impressed that Jung knew about Godzilla. Godzilla made such an impact on my early years that as a grown man, I did a Perry Mason just so I could meet Raymond Burr. But like many dreams, it was a disappointment. Not Raymond Burr. I never got to meet the man. He was in poor health at the time, so he pre-shot his scenes and then he went home. They called me to the set, and all I had to act with was a television monitor on his desk. So I got to act with his close-up. He was there, but not there. Like in a dream. A popular theory in the 1970s was that every character in your dream is really you. I mean, it's possible. That's why dreams make such a wonderful subject for debate. Everyone has an opinion. No one has any proof. I chose to believe it was true. Everything in your dream had to be you. After all, you were the dreamer. Well, that led me to another argument. Drawing a line at dreams was arbitrary. Why couldn't you say that everything we do in life, conscious or unconscious, is how we imagine ourselves? A sort of wish fulfillment including our nightmares. That would explain tattoos, opera, cheerleaders, cheerleader outfits, toupees, and pink flamingo statues on the front lawn. That is the only way I can describe my relationship to the outdoors. As a child, I loved the woods. It was my playground. Dad was a family doctor in a relatively poor area of town. We never had a lot of money. Recently, Dad apologized that we never got many toys. I told him it wasn't an issue. We never felt deprived. The creek was way better anyway. First of all, there was a lot of it, and it kept changing. There was always something new and horrible going on down there, and when you were done playing with it, you never had to put it back in the closet. In fact, if you tried to bring it home and put it in your closet, usually you got punished. When I moved to Los Angeles, I met several people who were at one with the out-of-doors. Dee Dee and Bruce, Bill and Linda, even my friend, director and writer Fred Bailey lived far away from civilization. They weren't off the grid, but they weren't beholden to it. They sneered at the grid. They mocked the grid. They had generators in their garage in preparation for their final breakup. Beth and I used to be frequent visitors at their abodes in the middle of the Santa Monica Mountains. At night, after dinner, we would sit outside drinking Dos Equis, looking up at the vast field of stars. Bill would roll a cigarette from his tin of three castles. We might sit for an hour in silence waiting for a shooting star. They understood that silence was a treasure. They knew the difference between the sound of a cricket and the chirp of a tree frog. They were on a first-name basis with Cassiopeia and the Seven Sisters. This was something new to me. The energy was not to conquer the world, but to observe it. I felt honored to be in their company. It was Dee Dee who encouraged Beth and me to try camping. They said they were headed for a week of backpacking in Havasu Canyon. And it was a good opportunity for us to see if we liked it. They had been there before. They were all experienced hikers. All we needed was the equipment and the desire. Now that I have experience, I could add that along with the desire, you also need a MasterCard. Camping equipment isn't cheap. It's expensive because everything is supposed to be light. That makes it easy to carry. That's the theory. In reality, it's only light if you don't carry it. We tried on backpacks at the camping store. I was concerned that mine was heavy and it was still empty. Our sales girl was a stout, strong woman who didn't wear any makeup. That gave her street cred. She told us the packs weren't heavy. We just weren't used to carrying things on our backs. She had a point. I asked if all the packs were this expensive. The one I was looking at cost several hundred dollars. She explained that my pack was expensive because it had an internal frame. That made it more lightweight. If I wanted, I could pay less for something heavier, and I was back to square one. So I ended up buying the expensive, heavy, lightweight backpack. Our sales girl was right about so many things. Heavy is relative, My backpack was much heavier once I stuffed it with my sleeping bag, my portable stove, my ground cover, my utensils, my dry socks, my mosquito repellent, my tick repellent, my sunblock, my food, my water. I hated my water. The camping store experience made me realize how far we've come from ancient times. It took centuries of evolution to perfect the king-size bed, TV, air conditioner combination. Camping seemed disturbingly regressive. It was like riding to work in a Conestoga wagon. You could do it, but why? Havasu Falls was an offshoot of the Grand Canyon. It was a 10-hour car ride. That's a long time. Joe suggested we travel at night so we could avoid the sun. That would be easier on the cars. We all agreed. Consequently, we arrived at the rim of the canyon starving and sleep-deprived. The camping grounds were down two miles of switchback into the Havasupai Indian Reservation. We opted to go down on horseback. This way we could feel more rugged and more importantly we wouldn't have to carry our gear. On top of the canyon, Havasupai guides piled all of our backpacks onto one horse. Once he was completely loaded, he fell over the edge. He made it to the bottom before we did. They say camping puts you in touch with the miraculous. Our first miracle on this trip was that the horse survived. Yes, he landed in the river. The water and our backpacks cushioned his fall. He got the rest of the day off and was eating grass in the meadow by the time we made it to the bottom. Our gear was laid out on the riverbank. My new backpack was wet and torn. My tent and sleeping bag were soaked. The head Havasupai guide consoled me. He said we were very, very lucky. It's not every day you could save a horse. I slung my now well-used $800 internal frame backpack over my shoulders, and we grunted our way down the trail toward our camping area. The trail was shaded by tall trees. There was a warm, sweet breeze, making the hike very pleasant. In the distance, we heard the sound of roaring water growing louder with each step. There is nothing in art that can touch the anticipations created by nature. A sunrise, a storm, and now Havasu Falls. This was a giant, powerful waterfall surrounded by odd rock formations made of something called travertine. Travertine is a red mineral in the water. It gets pulverized by the falls and flies up in the mist. When it falls to earth, it covers everything like plaster of Paris. Grass, leaves, trees, styrofoam cups. It hardens and turns the regular world into a land of delicate, rust-colored sculptures. No artist could imagine a world this beautiful, this fragile, this toxic. Yeah, travertine is poisonous, which makes the water undrinkable. This was a problem. The guide said all campers had to get their water from Hell Springs. It was a natural water source that did not have travertine in it. It dribbled out of a mountain about a half way from the campgrounds. People usually made a pilgrimage to the spring every morning. I asked the guide why it was called Hell Springs. I figured there was a curious Native American tale attached to the place. I was wrong. It was a curious urinary tract tale. He said after a couple of days of drinking from the spring, people usually started experiencing burning upon urination. He said it was unpleasant, but it was better than being poisoned by the travertine. Beth and I set up our tent. We angled it so we could see the stars and planets through the mosquito netting. That evening we skinny-dipped in Havasu Creek, just above the falls. As night fell, we had a beautiful dinner cooked on our campfire. We put our dirty dishes in the stream to wash them, and little fish came up and ate the scraps off of our plates. You would think we would be afraid of being poisoned by cleaning our plates in travertine lace waters that had been licked by local fish. No, we weren't. We were camping. When you camp, you look death in the eye several times a day and smile as he tips his hat, turns, and walks away, whispering, Maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow. may be the best part about camping we see so few sunrises camping makes a point of showing you the world you usually ignore the stars as you sleep not just a few here and there but the whole Milky Way you could watch packs of coyotes sniffing around your campfire in the middle of the night you could see thieves silently breaking into sleeping campers tents to steal watches and cash and then there's the dawn Not the dawn you see in movies with red skies and golden sun rising over the mountains. When you camp, you see the approaching dawn. Gray skies that are hardly discernible from night. A change in the air. A damp coolness that hugs the ground. A different kind of silence. A silence that is full of potential. I woke up early and left my tent while the rest of our bottom-of-the-canyon world was still asleep. The air was wet and cold. You could smell earth more than flower. Occasionally you picked up the scent of a desert blossom opening or loco weed blossoms closing. But usually, it was just earth. I walked to the edge of the camp and marked my territory, no burning yet. I brushed my teeth, washed my face... I headed for the spring to fill up canteens for coffee. The beauty of the canyon overwhelmed me, and it was not picturesque in any way. Ugly shrubs and gnarled trees grew beneath nasty, crumbling red rock mountains, but all altogether in the faint light of almost day. It was a beauty and a mystery that I never wanted to leave. And then the sun came up, and I was ready to negotiate. It got unbearably hot in a matter of minutes. See, this is why I can never be a superhero. I can't handle heat or humidity. Even if I had the skills, I couldn't pursue criminals during the summer, especially in a skin-tight outfit. I heard rustling in the tall grass. I turned and looked behind me. There were half a dozen fellow campers on their way to get water, too. It was the morning rush hour, and I had a two-minute head start. I was first in line at Hell Springs. I loaded up and headed back. When the sleepy heads at our campsite got up, we started the morning fire and had cowboy coffee. Cowboy coffee. This is where you boil coffee in an iron pot that's set directly on the fire. You let it set for a few minutes, and then you grab the handle of the pot and swing it around like a Ferris wheel. The centrifugal force keeps the lid on the pot and separates the coffee from the grounds. It can get messy. No system is perfect. Accidents happen on a Ferris wheel. Drinking a mouthful of coffee grounds can make you look like you just ate a mud pie. But as an experience, it is delicious. I have met several people in my life who don't drink coffee. Why? What is wrong with you? It smells like heaven. It creates the illusion that every morning is good. And if you make it right, you can clean and organize an entire garage before lunch. Dee Dee suggested we do a little mountain climbing and explore an old lead mine on the other side of the canyon. That sounded like a good idea. I took my water bottle and flashlight. I had never been in a deserted mine before. On the way up the mountain, we passed several no trespassing signs. We didn't care. We didn't recognize the legal standing of human signs. We belonged to the natural world. We kept going. We passed warning Deserted mine signs. We didn't need a warning. We knew exactly where we were going. We were coming up here on purpose. That's what made it an adventure. I stood at the mouth of a huge man-made excavation two-thirds the way up a mountain. I wandered into the cavern, imagining what it was like to come to work here every day. I thought it was probably a relief to get out of the sun. I imagined the giant elevators that must have been here to load man and machine deep into the earth. I kept walking, looking at the roof, the walls. The place seemed prehistoric. The light from the entrance vanished, and I was in complete blackness. Thick blackness. Couldn't see my hands or feet. I had become nothing but breath. Something in my head told me to stop. I did. I hooted to test my echo. I was disappointed. The cave was not the auditory hotspot I thought it would be. Sound stopped. I decided to turn on my flashlight before going any further. That is when I saw I had stopped, quite by chance, one foot from the edge of a drop-off that plunged into nothing. Joe came up to my side and looked down at the bottomless pit. He laughed a little and said, Whoa, Tobo, you almost died. I still couldn't speak. I stared at Joe. He looked down and said, Looks like it goes down at least a quarter of a mile. Dee Dee came up behind us and looked. Watch your step, Tobo. Some of these mine shafts go down a couple miles. They never would have found your body. Joe patted me on the back. One more step, my friend. (laughs) One more step. Yeah, Dee Dee said. Deserted mines are dangerous. Um, I think I'm going back now. I said, I turned and headed for the light. As the circle of daylight grew, I saw Death standing beside a rock shelf. He tipped his hat. I nodded to him as I headed down the mountain and back to camp. I resolved never to go into deserted mine shafts again. It felt good to make a promise I knew I could keep. The next day we were going to explore Mooney Falls. This was a different sort of adventure than Havasu Falls. Havasu Falls is picturesque. Turquoise waters roar over a 90-foot cliff into a translucent travertine pool below. People swim in the pool. They have their photos taken in front of the falls to prove they were there. There is no interaction beyond that. Man and falls remain separate entities. Mooney Falls does not provide the same photo op. It is a 200-foot ribbon of water that's twice as high as Niagara Falls. It marks the borderline of the far end of the campgrounds. To enjoy Mooney Falls, you have to climb down to the lower canyon to see it properly. The first part of the descent is a series of narrow switchbacks. If you don't have fear of heights, this will give it to you. The second part of the descent is through a narrow cave filled with bats. When the bats aren't there, it's still filled with bat droppings. This is one of the few traits I share with the bats. I like to go to the bathroom in my own home. The last 75 feet of the descent was down a vertical cliff face beside the falls. There were no handholds or footholds in the rock, it had been worn smooth by the water. To make any thought of climbing on your own impossible, the rock face was coated with a slick layer of algae. So, how does one get to the bottom? At some point in the distant past, someone used a hammer and pitons to make the descent. A piton is a piece of mountaineering equipment that looks like a metal spike. Once hammered into place, the piton sticks out of the rock face about six to eight inches. They become the little hand and footholds used to assist future generations in falling to their deaths. Didi Dee Dee told me every year two or three campers die here. By the way, Mooney Falls was named after James Mooney, who died falling into Mooney Falls while trying to rescue an injured friend. There was a piton sticking out about every three feet on the cliff wall. I took a deep breath and started down. On the way down, all you could hear is the roar of the water. You can't see much. The swirling mist blinds you. Joe kept yelling instructions to me, DON'T LOOK DOWN, STEPHEN! FOCUS ON THE ROCK IN FRONT OF YOU! Bill added his two cents. Three points contact, Tobo. You can't fall as long as you have three points of contact. All of these instructions helped, but in my mind, I was focused on a TV special I had just seen on circus performers. A trapeze artist said the death zone is any fall from over 35 feet. I was mentally doing subtraction on my way down the cliff. Three feet of piton, 72 feet, 69 feet, 66 feet. I was just trying to get to 35 feet before I slipped. The worst part about making it to the bottom alive is that you know the only way out is to climb back up. The thought of a future ascent haunted every vista, every snack, every lovely moment one has at the bottom of the canyon. I looked at pictures of Mooney Falls recently. The descent has been re-engineered. Now there are chains pounded into the rock. There's even a ladder placed on part of the cliff to help climbers. So consider my story an historical footnote of a time gone by. A simpler time. A time before massive wrongful death lawsuits. My friends congratulated me when we made it to the bottom. And there was a sense of accomplishment. This is something tangible camping provides. We rarely have a clear sense of finality in the real world. There's always another piece of paper on your desk, another phone call that has to be made. I think one of the main reasons why people camp out and continue to camp out is a clear sense of finishing something you started. A dinner is made. Dishes are washed. A tent is set up. Everything you do has an added level of difficulty, and it's often the difficulty that makes something memorable. We rewarded ourselves with a swim in the pools at the base of the falls. We had a snack. The plan was to hike to Beaver Falls. This was another landmark on the trail. It was a less remarkable manifestation of rock and water, but it would give us a good hike and another view to file in our book of dreams. The hike to Beaver Falls was about three miles across open terrain. Now this is an important detail. You see, Mooney Falls is surrounded by 200 feet of mountain walls, so the bottom is always covered in delicious shade. The sun was not a factor. On the walk to Beaver Falls, temperatures could easily climb into triple digits. I found an effective way to keep cool. I walked through the creek itself. The water was shallow, no more than six inches in most places. It flowed steadily but gently. I was thrilled that I finally found something on the trail that wasn't life-threatening. We got to Beaver Falls. It was a cluster of rocks that supported a cascade of small waterfalls rather than something singular and impressive like Mooney or Havasu Falls. We had another snack and plotted out the rest of our time in the lower canyon. We had a couple of hours before we had to head back. Our only constraint was the sun. We had to make the climb up Mooney Falls in daylight. I walked along a low ridge of loose stones in the stream as I listened to the experienced hikers determine the course of the rest of our day. One plan was to push a little farther. A plan was to hike up to a nearby ridge that had a commanding view of the canyon floor. That's when I changed the itinerary. My foot slipped on a stone in two inches of water. I didn't fall. I barely lost my balance, but there was a sickening internal crack. My heart started racing. Pain shot up my legs. Uh, Hey, guys, I shouted out. I I think I just hurt myself. The situation was so unremarkable. Everybody reacted as if I was trying to entertain with self-deprecating humor. I know, Tobo, I know, Bill said. Careful you don't drown in the stream. Everyone went back to high-level discussions. Hey, Bill? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm not kidding. I think I did something. Something bad. My foot slipped. Carefree concerns about future hikes were dropped. Bill came over to see what I had done to myself. I hobbled over to the shore and sat down. I took off my camping shoe. My foot didn't have any outward signs of distress, a bit of bruising, some redness. Bill looked at it. He held my foot gently in his hand. He pressed near my ankle. I jumped. Stabs of pain went up my leg. Bill looked at me with concern. He said, Tobo, I don't know how you did it, but I think you broke your foot. Really? I said. Bill nodded. I think so. It's swelling. Fast. Fast. You could put your shoe on now, but don't tie the laces. It could cut off your circulation. But it's better to keep your shoe on as long as you can still wear it. It'll be hard to cross this country barefooted. Bill stood up and made a few quick determinations. Okay, everybody, we need to get back as quickly as we can. I don't know how long tobo will be able to put weight on his foot or how long it'll take to get to Mooney Falls. It's three miles. Bill handed me his walking stick. Tobo, you put your weight on this as much as you can. Stay on the flat part of the trail. Then a new horror dawned on me. Bill, how am I going to climb out? Bill looked at me and smiled. Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. Hey, don't worry about that now. We have to get there first. We started back to Mooney Falls. My shoe was getting tighter and tighter. I could feel my foot pulsing. I tried to walk with my broken foot in the stream. The cold water seemed to help. Hey, don't trip again, Bill cautioned. I was mindful of every step. We got back to Mooney Falls. The sun had already set behind the rim of the canyon. We still had plenty of daylight to make the climb, but the growing shadows put us on notice that time was a limited commodity. Bill, I I don't see how I can get out. Maybe I should plan on spending the night down here and you could go back. You guys could get my sleeping bag. Joe said, Stephen. I'm not sure there's enough daylight for us to get out, to get to camp, get your sleeping bag, and climb back down again. And it'll be too cold down here for you to spend the night without it. I think you have to try to get out. I stared into Joe's clear blue eyes. There was no nonsense in his advice. He was right. There was no use wasting time trying to come up with a better option. There weren't any. This is another attraction of camping. The choices are often very simple. Cut off the arm or die. I said, you're right, Joe, let's go for it. Were you ready for this? Bill asked. Hey, my foot's only going to get worse. Bruce walked by and patted me on the back. Hey, Tobo's got a point. Let's do this. It'll all be fine. We headed to the canyon wall. I lifted my bad foot up. I pressed my weight onto the first piton. I saw colors. I made an involuntary noise. Bill asked if I was all right. I nodded. I kept going. I tried to take pressure off my foot by pulling with my arms. Now I wished I had used that gym membership more. I climbed slowly, steadily. Each time I had to put my broken foot on the metal spike pain shot up my leg, I began seeing television test patterns. Bill was beneath me. He kept calling out, Three points of contact, Tobo. All you have to do is think about that rock six inches in front of you. "'Stare at the wall. Just breathe and keep moving.'" Joe was behind Bill on the rock face. He started laughing. "'Hey, Stephen, you're doing great, man. "'You're climbing better going up than you did going down. "'You're halfway there.'" I was doing mental addition. I figured I was 40 feet off the canyon floor. I cleared my head and reached for the next piton. The pain in my foot filled every empty space inside of me. The only thing that kept me going was that I had to keep going. There was nowhere to stop. I kept focusing on the rock wall in front of me, that precious six inches. Joe yelled, you're almost there, Tobo. I reached up again and again. I powered through the pain. No stopping. I reached up again and I reached up. What? No piton. No piton. I had gone too far. Three feet too far. I had nothing to grab onto. "'I leaned onto the slippery rock face. "'I was standing on the last two pitons. "'My weight was pressing into my feet. "'The ledge I was trying to get to was four feet below me "'and two feet to the right. "'I was hovering in the death zone times two. "'I desperately searched the mountain wall for a finger hold, "'anything to keep from falling. Nothing. No help. "'The weight on my broken foot was constant. "'I wasn't seeing colors anymore.' I saw nothing. My body began to tremble from the strain. My mind stopped working. I thought for a moment about giving up, making the ultimate fall from grace, my last conscious act. Then Bill shouted, "'Don't move, Tobo! I'm coming!' Bill climbed up and over me. He leaned into my body, holding me on the rock face. Bruce climbed up and grabbed my good leg. He shouted, "'I got you, Tobo! You won't fall!' Joe jumped to the ledge and reached out over the 75-foot drop and grabbed my bad foot. He yelled, Let me have your leg. I'll guide you down. I lifted my broken foot and let Joe steer it to the ledge. Bruce shifted. Bill, at the risk of his own life, acted as a human seatbelt and kept me from falling. I made it to the ledge. Bill and Bruce followed, jumping to safety. The four of us huddled on the ledge at the entrance of the bat cave, catching our breath. Silence beyond exhaustion. Bill shook his head and pulled out his three castles. He sat back and looked blankly out over the canyon, had a smoke. He said, You know, Tubbo, there's something good about you breaking your foot. What, Bill? I said. Well, it means you probably won't be back here tomorrow. And Death sat with us, looking out over the canyon. He turned to me. I shook my head and replied, not tomorrow. I don't go camping anymore. A lot of my gear was stolen the night Ann and I came home from the hospital with our new baby, William. Point of reference makes things easy to remember. The heroism of my friends saving my life that afternoon is hard to forget as well. However, the point of reference is more abstract. Maybe I'll be balancing on a ladder trying to change a light bulb. Or the angle of the sun hits me a certain way. Or just sitting in traffic when my mind drifts and I vanish and I become nothing but my breath. I know I owe that breath to the actions of Bruce, Joe, and Bill. I was lucky, not only that I was alive, but that I was able to thank them. There are several mysteries that surround those moments on the rock wall. Whenever I pass any reflective surface and I see myself, I am reminded that time changes everything. So when something resists change, it catches my attention. One thing that has never changed is my memory of what I felt that day. Putting aside the sheer terror, when I was pulled to safety, I was embarrassed. Embarrassed to be rescued? Embarrassed that I got hurt? Now, I don't think it was my fault. I slipped on a stone. It could have happened to anyone. Rationally, I could see the injury was random. But I have never forgiven myself. The second mystery happened in the Batcave. After I thanked Joe, Bruce, and Bill for saving my life, all of them had the same response. A shrug of the shoulders, a nod, saying some personal version of, it was nothing. It was almost as if they were embarrassed as well. It's hard being saved. It's hard being a savior. There was a study made at the University of Texas about extraordinary human behavior. The hypothesis was that acts of heroism are triggered not by goodness, but by genetics. The scientists speculated that some of us carry something which they call the altruism gene. The theory runs that man is programmed to protect his family. Those who have the altruism gene have a different chemical definition as to who is in their family. This explains why some soldiers throw themselves on a grenade and some firemen run into a burning building one more time to look for survivors. As much as I am excited by the ideas of science, my afternoon on the canyon wall makes me doubt the study. I mean, am I the luckiest guy in the world that all three people I was hiking with had the altruism gene? It's possible, but unlikely. There was something in my friends that was triggered. And I don't think it was a gene. The English language has three clear tenses for dealing with time, past, present, future. Whether we know it or not, it affects the way we see the world. We divide everything we do into categories of time. Not all languages are constructed this way. Biblical Hebrew, for example, is not. In ancient Hebrew, the concept of past, present, and future wasn't relevant. The past was What has come to pass? The future was what will come to pass. It was like everything was part of one single plan. The time that was relevant in their culture was secular and sacred time. Secular time was the everyday, events that live in the realm of past, present, future. Sacred time defined the moments that were separate, that were outside the ordinary flow of time. These events were called Kadosh, which is translated in the Bible as the word holy. Today, when we think of something that is holy, we usually will think of God or heaven or angels, but the original meaning dealt with time. It was an event that happens beyond past, present, future. For me, it was the moment on the canyon wall. When Bill held my body against that rock to save me, he performed an act that was holy. As did Joe when he guided me to the ledge. As did Bruce when he grabbed my good leg and told me not to worry. I wouldn't fall. We were all caught in the grip of something bigger than ourselves. Now I see it as heroism. They may not. You often hear people who perform extraordinary things to help others saying something self-effacing like, I did what I had to do or I did what anyone would do. Well, that second statement is clearly not true. Even on The Rock that afternoon, Bill, Bruce, Joe, without thought or consultation, took on different tasks. I don't think it's a reach to say that there are a lot of people who would not have gone to those lengths that they went through to save someone, whether or not they were friends or whether or not they were with a moron on their first camping trip. I do believe the first statement... I did what I had to do. It suggests that their behavior was compelled. If they were compelled by something greater than their own reason to help me, it could explain why we sat together exhausted and confounded once we were safe. It could explain why we all felt slightly embarrassed by the whole thing. Now, I'm not saying that God saved me. I'm not proposing that some entity called God was looking out for me when there are thousands of others' poor souls falling off of mountains all the time. I am saying there could be something greater at work in our composition than chemistry. Something beyond reason, beyond science. Within us is the unexplainable part. Something holy. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Any mystery involving the divine presence in our lives comes down to a first question, and that question is not whether God exists. We don't know. We never will know. It is the question of purpose. If there is a God, there must be a point to everything, which puts us back on the canyon wall. Why? If every dream represents an aspect of who we are, is our purpose the dream of who we want to be? After my rescue, I hobbled back to camp. We sat around the fire and retold the story. There was no drama or humor. There was no sense of bravado. The story was told with few details. There were more pauses and words as Bill searched for a narrative Sentences were finished with silences or shrugs or just a shake of the head. The general consensus around the fire was that it was a bad day. Dee Dee gave me the now famous recipe for an injured foot or knee or ankle. RICE. R-I-C-E. Rest. Ice. Compression. Elevation. I spent the next two days in my tent. I soaked my foot in the cold creek that took the swelling down. We never mentioned the injury or the rescue for the rest of the trip. I never gave any more thought as to why it happened. The pain receded by the time we had to leave. When our week beneath the stars was done, we said goodbye to the travertine waterfalls. I took some of the strange rocks as souvenirs. We bid adios to the burning sun and hell springs, and we rode on horseback the two miles of switchbacks out of the canyon. We drove the 10 hours home. I never went to the doctor. I never knew if I dislocated or fractured my foot. The only lasting effect of my injury is that I still feel an approaching storm. We got back to Los Angeles late that day. Dirty, tired, exhausted. Beth and I dropped all of our gear onto our living room floor and called dibs for the first shower. That's when I noticed the body of a dead dog in our backyard. We went out to investigate. As it turned out, the dog still had a little life left in her. She was embarrassed to die in front of me. I was embarrassed to get her a turkey sandwich and a bowl of water. As odd as it sounds, the moment on the cliff came back to me. I found a new expression of purpose. The unlikely recipient was that dog. I was compelled to help her, to do what I had to do. I had been given the unexpected opportunity to save a life. I had the chance to thank Bill again by becoming him. And that's how holiness works. Its echoes repeat through a life in ways we sometimes don't recognize. On our next visit to the country, I introduced Bill to the newest member of our family, the pooch. Bill laughed and said, Tobo, that is the ugliest dog I've ever seen. I said, well, that may be true, Bill, but I saved her anyway. Bill toasted me with his dosekis and said, well, I'm very happy for you both. That night after dinner, we all sat out back and watched the stars. The pooch settled into my lap. I looked up and understood something new and old. Something I would read many years later in the Talmud. Whoever saves a life, it is considered as if he saved an entire world.
0: That was Tomorrow Comes, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. And you're listening to The Tobolowski Files. You know, Stephen, it's been a rather busy summer for the two of us. Um, I have been really busy finishing up the film version of The Tobolowski Files called The Primary Instinct. You can find more details about that at theprimaryinstinct.com. Uh, and uh, that movie is pretty much done. We are submitting it to film festivals. And I am relatively confident that in the next 12 months... Uh, fans of this podcast and show will be able to watch that film. Uh, so very excited about that. Especially if you donate to the Kickstarter, you will definitely be able to watch it in the next year at some <laughs> point uh, because that is one of the that is one of the uh, rewards. But uh, yeah, and I, so I've been I've been really busy with that and trying to maintain my full time job as well. You have been acting on a new show on Comedy Central, right? Right, right, uh, big time in Hollywood, Florida. Hysterical
1: show I've had More fun on this show Than I even had On Californication I mean We go to the Work each day And we're just laughing Our heads off it, I believe it starts airing in January, David, All right, well, is when the editing – and also, of course, the uh, Goldbergs. I've been working on the Goldbergs, which has been a blast as well.
0: So if you need to get your Stephen fixed, you should check out those shows, the Goldbergs and uh, Big Time in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, I would also strongly suggest that you check out Stephen's Facebook page at facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. Uh, and a lot of people have been asking, like, where are the new episodes? Where, when are you going to record a new episode? Well, obviously, we're recording one now. But uh, Stephen updates that page almost every single day, like, with, uh, with stories from his life. So if, if you are jonesing for a Stephen Tobolowsky fix, go to facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. And I, this started with me saying, Stephen, hey, you should give people some content, like, in between episodes, uh, maybe just write like a couple lines. And of course, you know, as of all things that I recommend Steven does, he took it and ran with it to its logical extreme, which is to say there's like novels that he's writing or not novels. Cause that implies it's not true, but, uh, I feature length articles that Steven is writing on the Facebook page. Uh, at Facebook.com/slash Well,
1: Tobolowsky. remember how I said uh, people have asked me the question in emails, wh- where do I get all the facts for, for my stories, is that I have boxes and boxes and boxes of notes of stories uh, that, that I have. And so I'm sharing some of those on the Facebook page.
0: There. Yeah. So check those out. Again, Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. If you want to find more episodes of The Tobolowsky Files, go to thetobolowskyfiles.com. And Stephen, if people want to email you personally, how can they do that? Uh, they can email me at stephentobolowski at
1: gmail.com, and I'll spell it accurately so you got it at S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T is in Tom, O-B is in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, Russian spelling as they say.
0: All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in to this week's episode of The Tobolowski Files. We will see you guys later.
1: Adios.